Number 1. God oftentimes makes use of men's own experience to convince them that they are helpless in themselves. When they first set out in seeking salvation, it may be they thought it an easy thing to be converted. They, they thought they should presently bring themselves to repent of their sins and believe in Christ, and accordingly they strove in their own strength with hopes of success. But they were disappointed. And so God suffers them to go on striving to open their own eyes and mend their own hearts, but they find no success. They have been striving to see for a long time, yet they are as blind as ever and can see nothing. It is all Egyptian darkness. They have been striving to make themselves better, but they are as bad as ever. They have often striven to do something which is good, to be in the exercise of good affections, which should be acceptable to God, but they have no success. And it seems to them that instead of growing better, they grow worse and worse. Their hearts are fuller of wicked thoughts than they were at first. They see no more likelihood of their conversion than there was at first. So God suffers them to strive in their own strengths till they are discouraged and despair of helping themselves. The prodigal son first strove to fill his belly with the husk which the swine did eat. But when he despaired of being helped in that way, then he came to himself and entertained thoughts of returning to his father's house. Number 2. God sometimes, by a particular assistance of the understanding, enables men to see so much of their own hearts as at once causes them to despair of helping themselves. He sometimes convinces them by their own trials, suffering them to try a long time to effect their own salvation until they are discouraged. But God, if He pleases, can convince men without such endeavors of their own, and sometimes He does so, as must be the case in many sudden conversions of which the instances are not unfrequent. By revealing to them their own hearts, He sometimes enables them to perceive that they are so remote from the exercise of love to God, of faith, and of every other Christian grace, as well as from the possession of the least degree of spiritual light, that they despair of ever bringing themselves to it. They perceive that within their souls all is darkness, is darkness itself, and is a shadow of death, and that it is too much for them to cause light. They find themselves dead to anything good, and therefore despair of bringing themselves to the performance of gracious acts. Thus we have shown that it is God's ordinary manner before He reveals His redeeming mercy to the souls of men to make them sensible of their sinfulness and danger, of their desert of the divine wrath, and of their utter helplessness in themselves. This we have shown to be most accordant with the Holy Scriptures as well as with God's method of dealing with mankind in other things. And we have shown in an imperfect manner how and by what means it is that God thus convinces men. This work is what Christ speaks of as one part of the work of the Holy Ghost, John 16, verse 8. When He is come, He will convince the world of sin, and of righteousness, and of judgment. It is God's manner to convince men of sin before He convinces them of righteousness. I come now to show the reasons of the doctrine. The propriety of such a method of proceeding is very obvious. How agreeable to the divine wisdom does it seem that the sinner should be brought to such a conviction of his danger and misery as to perceive his utter incapacity to help himself by any strength or contrivance of his own, and his entire unworthiness of God's help, and desert of his wrath, and that he should be brought to acknowledge that God, 
and the exercise of his holy sovereignty may with perfect justice do with him, as before he appears in his pardoning mercy and love as his helper and friend. A man who is converted is successively in two exceedingly different states, first a very miserable, wretched state of condemnation, and then in a blessed condition, a state of justification. How agreeable, therefore, does it seem to the divine wisdom that such a man should be conscious of this, first of his miserable condemned state, and then of his happy state, that as he is really first guilty and under a deep desert of hell, before he is really pardoned and admitted to God's favor, so he should first be conscious that he is guilty and under such a desert of hell, before he is conscious of being the object of pardoning and redeeming mercy and grace. But the propriety of God's of us dealing with the souls of men will appear perhaps better by considering the following reasons. Number one, it is the will of God that the discoveries of His terrible majesty and awful holiness and justice should accompany the discoveries of His grace and love in order that he may give to his creatures worthy and just apprehensions of himself. It is the glory of God that these attributes are united in the divine nature, that as he is a being of infinite mercy and love and grace, so he is a being of infinite and tremendous majesty and awful holiness and justice. The perfect and harmonious union of these attributes in the divine nature is what constitutes the chief part of their glory. God's awful and terrible attributes and His mild and gentle attributes reflect glory one on the other, and the exercise of the one is in the perfect consistency and harmony with that of the other. If there were the exercise of the mild and gentle attributes without the other, if there were love and mercy and grace in, in inconsistency with God's authority and justice and infinite hatred of sin, it would be no glory. If God's love and grace did not harmonize with His justice and the honor of His majesty, far from being an honor, they would be a dishonor to God. Therefore, as God designs to glorify Himself when He makes discoveries of the one, He will also make discoveries of the other. If men were sensible of the love of God, without a sense of those other attributes, they would be exposed to have improper and unworthy apprehensions of God, as though he were gracious to sinners in such a manner as did not become a being of infinite majesty and infinite hatred of sin. And as it would expose to unworthy apprehensions of God, so it would expose the soul in some respects to behave unsuitably towards God. There would not be a due reverence blended with love and joy. Such discoveries of love without answerable discoveries of awful greatness would dispose the soul to come with an undue boldness to God. The very nature and design of the gospel show that this is the will of God, that those who have the discoveries of His love should also have the discoveries of those other attributes. For this was the very end of Christ laying down his life and coming into the world to render the glory of God's authority, holiness, and justice consistent with his grace in pardoning and justifying sinners. That while God thus manifested his mercy, we might not conceive any unworthy thoughts of him with respect to those other attributes. Seeing, therefore, that this is the very end of Christ coming into the world, we may conclude that those who are actually redeemed by Christ, 
And has a true discovery of Christ made to their souls? Has a discovery of God's terribleness and justice to prepare them for the discovery of His love and mercy? God of old, before the death and sufferings of Christ were so fully revealed, was ever careful that the discoveries of both should be together, so that men might not apprehend God's mercy in pardoning sin and receiving sinners to the disparagement of His justice. When God proclaimed His name to Moses in answer to His desire that He might see God's glory, He indeed proclaimed His mercy, the Lord. The Lord God, gracious and merciful, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiven iniquity and transgression and sin. But he did not stop here, but also proclaimed his holy justice and vengeance. And that will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, and upon the children's children, unto the third and fourth generation. Thus they are joined together again in the fourth commandment. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. Thus we find them joined together in passages too numerous to be mentioned. When God was about to speak to Elijah in Horeb, he was first prepared for such a familiar conversing with God by awful manifestations of the divine majesty. First there was a wind, which rent the rocks, and then an earthquake, and then a devouring fire, 1 Kings 19, verses 11 and 12. God is careful, even in heaven, where the discoveries of His love and grace are given in such an exalted degree, also to provide means for a proportionable sense of His terribleness and the dreadfulness of His displeasure, by their beholding it in the miseries and torments of the damned, at the same time that they enjoy His love. Even the man Christ Jesus was first made sensible of the wrath of God before His exaltation to that transcendent height of enjoyment of the Father's love. And this is one reason that God gives sinners a sense of its wrath against their sins and of his justice before he gives them the discoveries of his redeeming love. Number 2. Unless a man be thus convinced of his sin and misery before God makes him sensible of his redeeming love and mercy, he cannot be sensible of that love and mercy as it is, that it is free and sovereign. When God reveals His redeeming grace to men and makes them truly sensible of it, He would make them sensible of it as it is. God's grace and love towards sinners is in itself very wonderful as it redeems from dreadful wrath. But men cannot be sensible of this until they perceive in some adequate degree how dreadful the wrath of God is. God's redeeming grace and love in Christ is free and sovereign as it is altogether without any worthiness in those who are the objects of it. But men cannot be sensible of this until they are sensible of their own unworthiness. The grace of God in Christ is glorious and wonderful, as it is not only as the objects of it are without worthiness, but as they deserve the everlasting wrath and displeasure of God. But they cannot be sensible of this until they are made sensible that they deserve God's eternal wrath. 
The grace of God in Christ is wonderful as it saves and redeems from so many and so great sins and from the punishment they have deserved. But sinners cannot be sensible of this until they are in some measure sensible of their sinfulness and see the wickedness of their hearts. It is the glory of God's grace in Christ that it is so free and sovereign, and doubtless it is the will of God that when He reveals His grace to the soul, it should be seen in its proper glory, though not perfectly. When men see the glory of God's grace aright, they see it as free and unmerited, and contrary to the demerit of their sins. All who have a spiritual understanding of the grace of God in Christ have a perception of the glory of that grace. But the glory of the divine grace appears chiefly in its being bestowed on the sinner when he is in a condition so exceedingly miserable and necessitous. In order, then, that the sin sinner may be sensible of this glory, he must first be sensible of the greatness of his misery, and then of the greatness of the divine mercy. The heart of man is not prepared to receive the mercy of God in Christ as free and unmerited till he is sensible of his own demerit. Indeed, the soul is not capable of receiving a revelation or discovery of the redeeming grace of God in Christ as redeeming grace without being convinced of sin and misery. He must see his sin and misery before he can see the grace of God in redeeming him from that sin and misery. Number 3. Until the sinner is convinced of his sin and misery, he is not prepared to receive the redeeming mercy and grace of God through a mediator, because he does not see his need of a mediator till he sees his sin and misery. If there were on the part of God any exercise of absolute and immediate mercy towards sinners bestowed without any satisfaction or purchase, the soul might possibly see that without a conviction of its sin and misery, but there is not. All God's mercy to sinners is through a Savior. The redeeming mercy and grace of God is mercy and grace in Christ. And when God discovers His mercy to the soul, He will discover it as mercy in a Savior. And it is His will that the mercy should be received as in and through a Savior, with a full consciousness of its being through His righteousness and satisfaction. It is the will of God that as all the spiritual comforts which His people receive are in and through Christ, so they should be sensible that they receive them through Christ, and that they can receive them in no other way. It is the will of God that His people should have their eyes directed to Christ, and should depend upon Him for mercy and favor, that whenever they receive comfort through His purchase, they would receive them as from Him. And that because God would glorify His Son as mediator, as the glory of man's salvation belongs to Christ, so it is the will of God that all the people of Christ, all who are saved by Him, should receive their salvation as of Him, and should attribute the glory of it to Him, and that none who will not give the glory of salvation to Christ should have the benefit of it. Upon this account, God insists upon it, and it is absolutely necessary that a sinner's conviction of his sin and misery and helplessness in himself should precede or accompany the revelation of the redeeming love and grace of God. I shall also mention two other ends which are hereby attained. Number 4. By this means, the redeeming mercy and love of God are more highly prized and rejoiced in when discovered. By the previous discoveries of danger, 
misery, and helplessness, and desert of wrath, the heart is prepared to embrace a discovery of mercy. When the soul stands trembling at the brink of the pit and despairs of any help from itself, it is prepared joyfully to receive tidings of deliverance. If God is pleased at such a time to make the soul hear His still, small voice, His call to Himself and to a Savior, the soul is prepared to give it a joyful reception. The gospel, then, if it be heard spiritually, will be glad tidings indeed, the most joyful which the sinner ever heard. The love of God and of Christ to the world, and to Him in particular, will be admired, and Christ will be most precious. To remember what danger he was in, what seas surrounded him, and then to reflect how safe he now is in Christ, and how sufficient Christ is to defend him, and to answer all his wants, will cause the greater exaltation of soul. God, in this method of dealing with the souls of his elect, consults their happiness as well as his own glory, and it increases happiness to be made sensible of their misery and unworthiness before God comforts them. For their comfort when they receive it is so much the sweeter. Number 5. The heart is more prepared and disposed to praise God for it. This follows from the reasons already mentioned, as they are hereby made sensible how free and sovereign the mercy of God is towards them, and how great His grace in saving them, and as they more highly prize the mercy and love of God made known to them, all will dispose them to magnify the name of God, to exalt the love of God the Father in giving His Son to them, and to exalt Jesus Christ by their praise, who laid down His life for them to redeem them from all iniquity. They are ready to say, How miserable should I have been had not God had pity upon me and provided me a Savior. And what a miserable condition should I have been had not Christ loved me and given himself for me. I must have endured the dreadful wrath of God. I must have suffered the punishment which I had deserved by all that great sin and wickedness of which I have been guilty. Application number 1 This subject admits of an application to unconverted sinners. If it be so, as has been represented, then let me exhort you to seek those convictions. Though you are at present sinners and have no terrifying sense of your danger of hell, yet I presume to say concerning most of you at least that you do not intend to go to hell. When you happen to think about another world, you flatter yourself that in some way or other you shall escape eternal misery, or at least you do not think of it with a willingness to be damned. But if it be that you do not suffer eternal damnation, you have a great work to do before you die. It ordinarily is a very difficult work especially to those who have gone on for a considerable time in ways of wickedness under the means of grace. If you are truly converted, you must be convinced of your misery and unworthiness. You must be guilty in your own sense. Begin your work, then, and seek to be made sensible of your misery and unworthiness. Make haste and set about this work speedily. You may defer it so long that it will be too late. It may be too late if you delay in these two ways. It may be too late as you may be overtaken with death before you set about it, as thousands of millions have been before you.
And if you should not die before you begin, yet it may be too late, as you may never have an opportunity to get through. Some persons are a long time under convictions before they are converted. There are some whom God suffers to continue a long time seeking salvation in their own strength before He makes them despair of help from themselves. They continue many years trusting in their own righteousness, as it were, wandering from mountain to hill, from one hole to another, seeking rest and safety. They are a long time building castles in the air. They sometimes flatter themselves from one consideration, and sometimes from another. And if you should delay, there is danger that you may not have time. Some are many years under fears of damnation and are seeking salvation, and there are many for whom death is too quick. Here we will consider briefly what are the occasions of the stupidity and senselessness of sinners, and then shall take occasion to warn those who would seek the convictions of God's Spirit. Number 1. Some provoke God to withhold the strivings and convincing influences of His Spirit. Some provoke God to give them up to hardness of heart. God lets them alone and intends to let them alone. Hosea 4.16 Ephraim is joined to idols. Let them alone. Psalm 81 verses 11 and 12 But my people would not hearken to my voice, and Israel would none of me. So I gave them up to their own heart's lust, and they walked in their own counsels. Hosea 5.15 I will go and return to my place till they acknowledge their offense and seek my face. In their affliction they will seek me early. Doctrine It is God's manner to make men sensible of their misery and unworthiness before He appears in His mercy and love to them, particularly before He appears in His redeeming love and mercy to their souls. Second use, to exhort those who have some convictions of sin and danger that they do not lose them. If you have the strivings of God's Spirit, God has met with you, led you to reflect upon your sins, and sensible that you are in danger of hell. And so made you concerned about your soul and put you upon seeking salvation. Take heed that you do not lose your convictions and grow senseless of eternal things and negligent of your soul's concern, that you do not return to your former careless way of living, that you do not return to your former sins. Here consider, number one, that there is danger of it. It is not all who are under concern for their souls and who, by the strivings of God's Spirit, are put upon seeking and striving for salvation who hold out. There are many more who set out at the beginning of the race who do not hold out to the end. Many things intervene between the beginning and the end of the race which divert and stop and turn back many who commenced well. There are many who seem to be under strong convictions and to be very earnest in seeking, whose convictions are but short-lived, and some who seem to be much concerned about salvation for a considerable time, it may be for years together, yet by degrees grow careless and negligent. 
There is much in your own heart which tends to stupefy you. It is a natural tendency of sin and lust to stupefy the conscience. And as corruption is reigning as yet in your heart, it will ever be ready to exert itself in such acts as will have a great tendency to drive away your convictions. And Satan is doubtless diligently watching over you striving in all ways to abate and to take off your convictions. He joins in with the sloth and lust of your heart to persuade to negligence and to turn your mind to other things. And the world is full of objects which tend to take off your mind from the soul's concern and are constantly, as it were, endeavoring to take possession of your mind and to drive out the concerns of another world. Number 2. Consider, if you lose your convictions, it will be no advantage to you that ever you have them as to any furtherance of your salvation. Whatever terrors you have been under about damnation, to whatever reflections you have been brought upon your sins, whatever strong desires you have had after deliverance, and whatever earnest prayers you have made, it will all be lost. What you have suffered of fear and concern will turn to no good account. And what you have done, the pains you have taken, will be utterly lost. When you have strove against sin and labored in duty, have stemmed the stream and have proceeded a considerable way up the hill and made some progress towards the kingdom of heaven, when once you have lost your convictions, you will be as far from salvation as you were before you began. You will lose all the ground you have gained. You will go quite down to the bottom of the hill. The stream will immediately carry you back. All will be lost. You had as good never have had those convictions as to have had them and then to lose them. Number three. You do not know that you shall ever have such an opportunity again. God is now striving with you by His Spirit. If you should lose the strivings of the Spirit, it may be that God's Spirit would never return again. If you are under convictions, you have a precious opportunity which, if you knew the worth of it, you would esteem as better than any temporal advantages. You have a price in your hands to get wisdom which is more valuable than gold or silver. It is a great privilege to live under the means of grace, to enjoy the word and ordinances of God, and to know the way of salvation. It is a greater thing still to live under a powerful dispensation of the means of grace, under a very instructive, convincing ministry. But it is a much greater privilege still to be the subject of the convincing influences of the Spirit of God. If you have these, you have a precious advantage in your hands. And if you lose it, it is questionable whether you ever have the like advantage again. You are counseled to seek the Lord while He may be found, and to call upon Him while He is near. Isaiah 55, verse 6 A time in which God's Spirit is striving with a man by convictions of his sin and danger is especially such a time that is a sinner's best opportunity. It is especially a day of salvation. God may be said to be near when He pours out His Spirit upon many in the place where a person dwells. It is prudence for all then to be calling upon God as being near at such a time. 
but especially is God near at a time when he is pouring out his spirit in immediately convincing and awakening a man's own soul. If therefore God's spirit is now at work with you, you have a precious opportunity. Take heed that you do not by any means let it slip. It may doubtless be said concerning many that they have missed their opportunity. Most men who live under the gospel have a special opportunity, that there is a certain season which God appoints for them, which is above all others, a day of grace with them, when men have a fair opportunity for securing eternal salvation if they did but know it and had hearts for it. But the misery of man is great upon him, for man knoweth not his time. The wise man tells us, Ecclesiastes 8, verses 6 and 7, that to every purpose there is a time and judgment. Therefore the misery of man is great upon him, for he knoweth not that which shall be. And again, 9, verse 12, man knoweth not his time. If the Spirit of God is now striving with you, it may be it is your time, and it may be your only time. Be wise, therefore, and understand the things which belong to your peace before they are hid from your eyes. You have not the influences of the Spirit of God in your own power. You cannot have convictions and awakenings when you please. God is sovereign as to the bestowment of them. If you are ready to flatter yourself that although you neglect it now when you are young, yet you shall be awakened again, that is a vain and groundless presumption. It is a difficult thing for a man who has been going on in a sinful course to reform. There are a great many difficulties in the way of thorough reformation. If you therefore have reformed and return again to your former sin, you will have all those difficulties to overcome again. Number four. If you lose your convictions and return again to a way of allowed sinning, there will be less probability of your salvation than there was before you had any convictions. Backsliding is a very dangerous and pernicious thing to men's souls, and is often spoken of as such in God's word, which was signified in that awful dispensation of God in turning Lot's wife into a pillar of salt to be a standing emblem of the danger of looking back after one is set out in a way of religion. The ill to which they are subject who lose their convictions is not merely the loss of their convictions. Their convictions are not only a means of no good to them, but they turn too much ill. It would have been better for them that they had never had them, for they are now set more remote from salvation than they were before. For having risen some considerable way towards heaven and falling back, they sink lower and further down towards hell than ever they were. The way to heaven is now blocked up with greater difficulties than ever it was. Their hearts now are become harder for light. And convictions being once conquered, they evermore are an occasion of a greater hardness of heart than there was before. Yea, there is no one thing whatsoever which has so great a tendency to it. Men's hearts are hardened by losing convictions as iron is hardened by being heated and cooled. If you are awakened and afterwards lose your convictions, it will be a harder thing to awaken you again. 
If there were only that you are growing older, there would be less probability of your being awakened again. For as persons grow older, they grow less and less susceptible of convictions. Evil habits grow stronger and more deeply rooted in the heart. You greatly offend God by quenching his spirit and returning as a dog to his vomit and as a sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. And there is danger that God will say concerning you as he did concerning Jerusalem, Ezekiel 24:13, Because I have purged thee, and thou wast not purged, Thou shalt not be purged from thy filthiness any more till I have caused my fury to rest upon thee. If you return again to your wicked course, if you should go to hell at last, you will lament that ever you have had convictions. You will find your punishment so much the heavier. And if you should be hereafter awakened and set about striving for salvation, yet you will probably find harder work in it. You do but make work for yourself by your backsliding. You will not only have all to do over again, which you have done and which you must have done, if you had gone on, but there will be new work for repentance. There probably must be greater and more dreadful terrors, and it may be a much longer time spent in seeking and striving, a more difficult work with your own headstrong corruptions. If you were but sensible of one half of the disadvantages of backsliding and the many woes and calamities in which it will involve you, you would be careful not to lose your convictions. Number 5. Consider the encouragement there is in Scripture to persevere in seeking salvation, as in Hosea 6, verse 3. Then shall we know if we follow on to know the Lord. Thence we may gather that God usually gives success to those who diligently and constantly and perseveringly seek conversion, and that you be the better directed in taking care not to lose your convictions. It is convenient that you should be aware of those things which are common occasions of persons losing their convictions. I shall, therefore, briefly mention some of them. Number one. Persons falling into sin is very often the occasion of their losing their convictions. Some temptation prevails so that they are drawn into some sin. Some lust upon some occasion has been stirred up, and they have been overcome by their sinful appetites and have provoked God to anger. It may be that they have been drawn into some criminal act of sensuality and have so quenched the spirit, or they have got into some quarrel with some persons. Their spirits are disturbed and heated with malice and revenge, and they have acted sinfully, or have sinfully expressed themselves, and have driven away the Spirit of God. These are the most ready ways to put an end to convictions. Number two, sometimes there happens some diverting occasion. There is some incident which for the present diverts their minds. Their minds are taken off from their business for a short time. They are drawn into company. It may be they see something which revives a desire of worldly enjoyments and entertainments, or they are engaged in some exercise and business which diverts their minds, and so afterwards they are more careless than they were before. They are not so strict in attending private duties, and carelessness and stupidity by degrees steals upon them, 
till they wholly lose their convictions. Number three, some change in their circumstances takes off their minds from the concerns of their souls. Their minds are diverted by the new circumstances with which they are attended, or are taken up with new pleasures and enjoyments, or with new cares and business in which they are involved. It may be they grow richer, they prosper in the world, and their worldly good things crowd in and take possession of their minds, or worldly cares are increased upon them, and they have so many things to look after that their minds are taken up and they have not time to look after their souls. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God, for when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.